<laughs> okay, as, as we begin tonight, this is uh, some, you know, extra special stuff that we're going to start with. It's not in your notes, so that's why I give you paper, because you might want to write this down. We're going <laughs> to, before we get started, I'm going to give you one last scriptural evidence this is not the only scriptural evidence that can be given, but I'm going to give you one last piece of evidence from the Bible that helps us understand that God's law remains unchanged and valid for us today. Okay? So we've already discovered that God wants to write his law upon our hearts, which he said this in the Old Testament, so obviously we know which law he was talking about. He wanted to write his moral law, the Ten Commandments, on our hearts. We saw that when Colossians chapter 2 talks about the ordinances and all these things that were done away with, it's talking about the laws of Moses. Okay, so we saw that today. But I want to give one last piece of evidence. So we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. And since <clears throat> this is off the cuff, it's from memory, I didn't put it in my notes even, but I felt impressed to do this. I want to see if there's a volunteer who would read this for us. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. This is the definition of sin, the biblical definition of what sin is. Uh, would anybody like to read that for us? I've got a mic. 3 and verse 4. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4. Okay, Don's going to read this for us. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Okay, sin is lawlessness, okay? What version are you reading from? King James. New King James, I was going to say. Okay, so if we were to read in the King James, sin is the transgression of the law, okay? Full stop, period. Sin is the transgression of the law. That's the biblical definition. Sin comes about as breaking the law. Paul acknowledges, he's like, I wouldn't have known sin if it weren't for the law. Okay, so sin is a result of breaking the law. Our definition, we need to keep this in mind, the definition of sin is the transgression of the law. That's what sin is. Okay, now let's go to John chapter 16. And I'm using two mics now. You, you, muted, you muted this one? Okay, <laughs> John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Okay, John chapter 16, we're going to read verse 8, 9, 10, 11, okay? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Comforter here, the Spirit of Truth. The Bible says, and when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin. Some of your Bibles say, convict the world of sin. What did we define sin as? lawlessness or the transgression of God's law, right? Sin is the transgression of the law. Now, the Holy Spirit was going to come after Christ did what? Ascended back to heaven, right? He's like, I have to go away so that I can send you another comforter. So think about this, right? Christ dies on the cross, rises again, spends 40 days with the disciple, and then ascends back to heaven. And then the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, falls out. And the Holy Spirit, one of its expressed jobs is to convict the world of sin. Now, why would the Holy Spirit need to convict the world of sin if the law had been done away with? 
The very fact that you and I need the Holy Spirit is an evidence that God's law remains unchanged. The Holy Spirit will come and convict you when you are breaking God's law. And this is why we may know, without a shadow of a doubt, that God's law remains unchanged. Now, we're going to go a little bit further. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who wants to write the law of God. This is God's desire. The Holy Spirit is simply cooperating with that desire as one of the members of the Godhead. Okay, so we come to Romans chapter 6, and I think we know this one well. And then we're going to conclude with one passage in James, and then we'll get straight into our topic for tonight. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1 through 3. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now what is sin? It's the transgression of the law, is it not? Okay. So shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, that's not the goal. Okay. So... The Bible is trying to make very clear to us that God's law has remained unchanged. Now, the final thing that I want to show you is the fact that we know clearly from Scripture that at the end of time, when God finishes the judgment, we will have been judged by the law of God. How do we know this? James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and verse 10. Okay, this is a very important verse. We're going to read 10, 11, and 12. James chapter 2 and verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So the Bible is telling us whoever keeps the whole law but breaks one of them has actually broken the entire law. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also do not kill. Now if you commit no adultery... Yet if you kill, you are become a what? Transgressor of the law. Now verse 12 is very interesting. So speak ye and so do, as they that shall be judged by what? The law of liberty. liberty. Now what law of liberty are we talking about? Ten commandments. He just told us. The same God who said, don't commit adultery, also said you shall not kill. Okay? So we know what law he's talking about. The law of liberty in the Bible is telling us that God's law actually frees us. It becomes a promise when we enter into that covenant relationship. When God writes it up on our heart, it's like a promise. Instead of looking at it as do's and don'ts, it'll be, you won't, you just won't commit adultery. You won't kill. You will honor God. You will not take the name of the Lord in vain. It becomes a promise to us. And this is the beauty of the scripture. So um, I wanted to share that as we get started as a bit of review tonight. So let's pray. And let's dive deep into the Word of God as we talk about this important question, Can the dead speak? Father God, I just want to thank you for the power of your Word. And I want to ask that you would bless us as we continue to dive deep tonight into the Word of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can the dead speak? From the very beginning, I apologize, my voice seems to be giving out a little bit even though it feels better than it has all week. From the very beginning, Satan, that serpent of old, the devil, has been lying to humanity about death. 
If you remember, as we studied at the very first night back in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, you would find that this was his original lie to humanity. If you remember, he comes to the woman and he says, you shall not surely die. God is a liar. Full stop, period, right? Okay? You shall not surely die. And Eve is deceived by this lie. She partakes of the fruit, then she gives it to Adam, and the blame game ensues, and then we receive the promise of the Messiah, where Jesus becomes the curse of sin. Now the wages of sin, my friends, as God said and told Adam and Eve before they fell into sin, the wages of sin has always been death. Before Paul would ever write in Romans chapter 6, in verse 3, Romans chapter 6 and verse 20c, before Paul would ever write, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? So the wages of sin has always been death. Now what are wages? Well, I mean, Travis, if you accept a job for someone... They're agreeing to pay you, right? That would be your just due and wages, right? Okay? So wages is what you deserve. You know, Preston, when you get off shift, the boss isn't allowed to just say, you know what? Um, that was just like a free day of labor. Thank you for your service. I'm not going to pay you. When you work with Misty and you guys spend 12 hours or whatever it is at Sonic, they have to pay you, right? Same for Ernie, right? Whatever we do, right? So, this is what we deserve, death. You and I deserve death. And the Bible says in the book of Ezekiel that the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. Okay? No one can cheat death. You know, there's all this research going into, you know, if we cryo-freeze my body, you know, perhaps we can resurrect it years down the road when science gets better trying to cheat death, but none of us can cheat death. The Bible is very clear about that. But praise God for what Jesus has done for us, right? For the wages of sin is death. This is what we rightfully deserve. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though we deserve death, if we accept Jesus as our personal Savior daily, we stand with the one who has overcome death. But what happens when we die? Well, in order to answer this question, I would like to turn back to the book of Genesis. This time we'll go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says this, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Okay, so this is basically the recipe for life. God formed us out of the, death of, uh, out of the dust of the ground which was different from all the other days of creation, different from all the other things that he did. He specifically takes time to form man out of the dust of the ground, and then he breathes into man's nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living soul. Okay? Now, this is important because people will say, you know, we've got this spirit, and we've got the physical body, and to be absent with the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so, you know... When we die, then we're conscious up in heaven in this spirit being. Some people think we literally physically go to heaven when we die. But we're going to define this. What is a soul? 
Okay? Now we see here that God, when he breathed into man the breath of life, he became a living soul. Well, let's keep going. Uh, Job chapter 27, verse 3 and 4 says this. All the while my breath is in me, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. Okay? While my breath is in me, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness, nor the tongue utter deceit. Okay? So we're seeing this consistent theme that the Spirit that we're given is synonymous with breath. In fact, the word for Spirit in both the Greek and Hebrew of the Scriptures actually can literally mean breath, okay? So God has given us the breath of life. Now, notice this. We keep going along with this thought. Psalm 146, verse 3 and 4 says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, nor in a Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He's, he returns to his earth in that very day. His plans perish. Okay, so I put this in your notes. I put this on the slides. The dust of the ground plus the breath of God equals a living soul. That means a body plus the breath of God equals a living soul, or a body plus the spirit of God equals a living soul. Now this becomes important as we keep going, because where does the spirit go? This is what many people ask. Where does the spirit go when, they, when someone dies? Well, there are some people who claim that they have met Jesus in the spirit after death and then come back to life. In fact, um, there's a, a movie that's been released by Angel Studios that is all about this. The whole idea that people die, they encounter Jesus, and then they come back to life. Well, that's complete and utter false doctrine, but this is being published and popularized. Just a reminder, as we've seen simply here in just a short moment, that the breath of life that God himself gives us is what makes us a living soul. That's the spirit that God is talking about. God sustains all life. Okay, now, Job chapter 33, verse 4, gives us that evidence further, right? It says, the spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Okay, we keep seeing this combination, spirit and breath, being the same thing. The spirit of God has made me. All the while, the spirit of God, right? All the while, there is breath in my nostrils and the spirit of God. <coughs> if we look back... Um, to Job, the Lord God, um, here, all the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, right? We keep seeing this relationship here. So what happens when someone does die, okay? What happens to the Spirit? Well, the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, the dust will return to the earth as it was and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7. Okay, so the Spirit returns to God who gave it what has God given man? The breath of life. Okay? Now this becomes very important for us to understand here. Okay? James chapter 2 verse 26 further brings this point home. For as the body without the spirit is dead, now that we understand that spirit, when it's talking about human bodies, is representative of breath, so as the body without Breath is dead, right? If we stop breathing, we die. So faith without works is dead. Meaning, as a Christian, 
If I say I have faith in Jesus, but there's no corresponding works, then my spiritual life is dead. Okay? It's the same thing as our physical body, right? We learned this a couple nights ago, that just as we have very real physical needs for our body, so does our spiritual. Okay? So James here, when he writes, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It's an illustration. He's reminding us, just as the soul dies when it can no longer breathe, so the spiritual life dies when we say we have faith, but there are no corresponding works to back up that faith. Now, these works don't come to save ourselves. They're not manifest because I'm trying to look good. They come naturally because I'm in love with Jesus. That's why the works begin to happen in the life of a Christian. It's not for boastful proclamation. It's not so I can stand up here. It's not so that you can stand in front of the church and say, I'm so amazing. You know, I was going door to door and doing Bible studies. Like, that's not the point. We will desire to serve the King of Kings because we love him. And that's what James is trying to make evidence here. Well, how much did the dead know? This is kind of an important question. Do they know a lot? They know nothing. That's correct, right? Okay. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's the best verse about dogs in the Bible, by the way. Every other verse in the Bible is pretty negative. (laughs) And all it says is a living dog is better than a dead lion. Verse 5, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know what? Nothing. Nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten, and their love and their hatred and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Okay? The dead know nothing. We already read in Psalm 146 that in that very day, their thoughts or their plans perish. His plans perish. Now, you know, for those who believe that maybe the dead go to heaven, you would think that they would praise God, right? I mean, that would be pretty logical. Well, the Bible is also clear about that, too. It says, The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So we're getting a very clear picture. The dead know nothing. The dead do not praise God. Can the dead come home? And this is a really important thing for us to ponder, right? Because we're going to find at the end of time that this is going to be one of the things that deceives people. The two tests that we have to face at the end of time as Christians is the test of whether or not we will remain faithful and true to God's Sabbath by faith and whether or not we will resist the deceptions of spiritualism. Okay? Now notice this. Can the dead come home? Well, Job chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 says, As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. The dead do not return to the house. The dead can never return home again. And this is so important for us to understand. Because as I was saying, This deception will be rampant. 
One of the ways that the devil will deceive people is through the appearance of dead loved ones. This is known as spiritualism. Now, I define this for you in your handout. Spiritualism is a system of belief or religious practice based on the supposed communication with the spirits of the dead, especially through mediums. Now, praise the Lord, the dictionary gets it right. The supposed communication with the dead. It's not actual communication with the dead. But spiritualism is very dangerous and very deadly. So much so that Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14 tells us this. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, whoever loves and practices a lie. Okay, So outside are the dogs. Now dogs is a symbol of the heathen who does not love God, right? Uh, we could talk about that later. That's another sermon for another time. But specifically, it also includes in there sorcerers. Sorcerers are those who practice dark arts, who communicate with the dead, who maybe try some supposed magic tricks, but that's a category of spiritualism right there. And God is saying that those who try to communicate with the dead, who practice the dark arts of the devil, will not be in the kingdom of heaven. It couldn't be more clear, right? Revelation chapter 22. It's the very chapter where we're told that Jesus is coming soon. But he won't be coming to take home the sorcerers, the liars, the idolaters. This is why back in the days of Israel, Saul had put to death and driven from the land all the sorcerers, mediums, spiritists, astrologers, palm readers, and so on. And this is very important. You know, <clears throat> many of us today may not have Ouija boards. We may not have gone to a palm reader. I certainly hope not. But you're beginning to see, right, if you watch any of the Hollywood movies, and I pray not, but, I mean, how many of these things have some form of communication with the dead? I mean, it's most blatantly done in almost every cartoon that they make for kids. I mean, all the way back to The Lion King. And I remember, I did see that growing up, you know? Casper the Friendly Ghost. What a deceiving title. <laughs> okay? That was when Manny was a kid. That was long before many of us were kids. Probably around the time of, I mean, at least for me and, you know, Travis and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a big one. I remember that too. I mean, I, I've never seen it, but I remember having some of my friends big into it. People are still big into that, right? So, the world is trying to portray this as normal, right? Talk to your dead relative. They're going to come back and give you guidance, you know? And, and when we have funerals of major, you know, popular stars, you know, when Kobe Bryant died tragically in 2020 before the pandemic really hit, you know, people are talking as if he's looking down upon them. This is how the world believes when it comes to the dead. So we pick up this story in 1 Samuel chapter 28 and verse 3. Uh, the Philistines have gathered for battle and Samuel had died. 
And all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. It's just reminding us of this fact. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. His heart was greatly troubled. And Saul inquired of the Lord and, did not answer, and, and the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, In fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul, he disguises himself. He put on other clothes and he went to the, with two men. They came to the woman by night and said, Please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one whom I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done. So ironic, right? Saul is here. But why does he end up here? Does anybody remember why he ends up here? Samuel foretold Saul's end. If you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's down in verse 22 and 23. If you're to look there, you can double check me on this. Saul has just rebelled against the Lord. He thought that he could offer the sacrifice. He got impatient. Samuel the prophet didn't show up quite on his time scale or timeline. And so Saul offers a sacrifice. He had no right, no spiritual authority to do so. Just because he was king of Israel did not give him permission. Samuel comes. And he begins to confront him and ask him why he's done this. And Saul begins to kind of blame it on the people. And it was like, you know, I, it was just kind of necessary. People were leaving and I needed to sacrifice this. And Samuel turns to Saul and he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. This was God's desire all along. He didn't want to see the endless slaughtering of sheep and lambs. Obedience was all he was asking and he was offering to help. It's the same today. To obey is better than to have to come into the Lord in repentance, right? Like, God is actually able to keep you from falling. That's the promise of the book of Jude. Now we should always come to the Lord because he's willing to forgive us, right? But God's ultimate desire is like, it's better to obey. But then he says something very fascinating. Something that probably shocked a lot of people. He says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Now where does Saul end up? At the end of his life, he is now with the witch asking for her to conduct a seance, partaking in witchcraft. Now that's very important for us. Because a lot of us, we have knowledge and understanding of God's word. In fact, I believe everyone here has gone through Bible studies, has studied maybe the Amazing Facts Bible study, maybe you've done the It Is Written Bible study. But none of us here tonight can say we are without knowledge. But if we rebel against the Lord and the light that he has given us, the end of the story for us will be the same as Saul if we keep persistently resisting the Lord. If we keep persistently resisting the Holy Spirit, 
that we talked about earlier tonight that comes to convict us of sin, that we might live righteously through the power of God. When deception is rampant at the end of time, do not think that you are above being deceived. I mean, Jesus said, if possible, it'll deceive even the very elect. This is why we should not be stubborn like Saul, when the Lord convicts us, I don't want to rebel against the voice of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I would rather obey because to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't want to repeat the story of Paul. I, I don't want to be deceived at the end of time by the deceptions that will be running rampant. So Saul, he finds himself in the situation where the Lord no longer is answering him. And he's here at the woman. And the woman's reminding him, she's like, hold on, hold on. Like, do you not know what Saul has done? Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? Verse 9, going into verse 10. And Saul swore by the Lord. And isn't that fascinating? Like, the Lord doesn't even answer him anymore, but he swears by the name of the Lord. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw the spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And he said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now it's interesting that the Spirit right now in this verse did not have Samuel coming down from heaven. Samuel came up from out of the earth. There's some correct things there, at least, about the state of the dead. But then we go on. Now Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me. God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Why did the Lord not answer him? Well, Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2, gives us a very clear answer. There are times when the Lord will not answer us if we meet the conditions of Isaiah 59, and verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot ear. So, first verse is telling us, look, God is not beyond the ability to save you. His ear is not completely shut. It's not even shut at all. He wants to hear you. But... Here's the but. Verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, and he will not hear. When we as professed Christians go on a path where we choose sin, we hold on to that sin and refuse to repent and confess and turn from that sin, God will not hear us. God will not hear us. And Saul found himself in a place where he had completely cut himself off from God. The kingdom was stripped away from him. Now I would say I don't believe that Saul had completely cut himself off from God. 
I believe what he does this night is what ends up completely cutting him off from God. The kingdom was lost. There was no saving his kingdom. But his salvation was not forever lost yet. Verse 16. Then Samuel said, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? Okay. Had the Lord become his enemy yet? No. The Lord had not. The Lord had departed from him. But it cannot be said truly that he had become his enemy. Huh? He had hardened his heart, yeah. Saul had definitely hardened his heart. We know that the Spirit of God was not with him. Now, verse 17 and 18, we're going to find, are true and factual. Okay? The Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn, except for the fact that this isn't actually Samuel. But the devil is able to state what has happened. Okay? So what we're seeing here is repeating what has happened. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. Samuel had told him that. Okay? And given it to your neighbor David. Samuel had also told him that. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Okay? All of that is true. But verse 19 is not, because the devil is not a prophet. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel into your hand, into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Why is verse 19 not true? And why is the statement that the Lord has become your enemy not quite yet true? Well, it comes down to the fact that the devil is no prophet. Saul was not going to be able to reclaim the kingdom. That's for sure. But if Saul had have repented, if Saul had truly acknowledged his mistake, I do not believe we read the next chapter where Israel is slaughtered by the Philistines. I really do believe that God shows up somehow in a mighty way. And the kingdom in time is transferred to David. There are moments in scripture where we come to these crossroads where if they had done something different, the result would have been different. Hezekiah is another example of that, right? Instead of giving glory to God, he's like, look at all my wealth. And God says, you know what? Your sons are going to be taken captive. If you hadn't have done that, perhaps Israel's probation would have been extended longer. But Saul had so hardened his heart, as Travis said, that for him there was no turning back, not because the Lord was beyond saving him, but because he had hardened his heart against the Lord, and he finds himself in a dark place, a path that can only be reached by persistently choosing to resist the convicting power of God. Immediately Saul fell 
full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he'd eaten no food all day or night. Essentially what happens is this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Saul is totally destroyed because he believes more in the power of the medium than he does in the power of God to save. And Saul seals his eternal destiny. Some might say that that eternal destiny is in a lake of fire where he's burning forever and ever. But that leads us to ask the question, do the wicked go to hell when they die? Are there verses that say, you know, the the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever? Yes, there is. Do we know that there's going to be fire that comes down from heaven? Oh, yes, there is. But the Bible also tells us something very interesting. I'm keeping this short because... We can summarize this really simply in one verse, Jude 9. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, have, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah suffered that avenge, the vengeance of eternal fire and are not burning today. The dead know nothing. The dead are not up somewhere in space burning right now and the dead are not in heaven the dead cannot return to the home do the righteous go to heaven after they die well i believe that david even though he fell short as a king who followed um, saul i believe that david is a righteous man and i believe that we will see david in heaven and in Acts chapter 2, verse 29 and verse 34, we learn something very interesting about David. David, the fearless king, who had slain his ten thousands while Saul had only slain the thousand. We read this in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us to this day. Verse 34, if we need it to be clear, well, Peter makes it very clear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. Obviously speaking actually of Jesus there in that psalm that Peter references. But speaking of David, he's very clear. David has not ascended up into heaven. Well, what about the story of Lazarus? Well, we know when they first receive the news that Jesus isn't alarmed by it, he doesn't immediately rush to go. He talks to his disciples, and finally they begin to set course, and they find out that Lazarus is actually dead. And the disciples are wondering why are we going now and and Jesus like you know Lazarus sleeps and then they're like well if Lazarus sleeps then he must be all right and then finally Jesus has to say plainly Lazarus is dead Lazarus is dead well in John chapter 11 verse 23 through 27 Jesus begins to have this dialogue with Martha and Martha she's wishing that Jesus had showed up sooner Like, Lord, if you had just come on time. Jesus said unto her again, your brother shall rise. 
And Martha said, I know he shall rise again in the last in the resurrection at the last day, okay? So here's evidence that before we ever get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that they understood that there was a resurrection in the last days. And she's thinking of some distant time. She's like, you know, I know my brother's going to rise again. But Jesus turns around and says to her, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet he shall live. Though he believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Verse 43 of the chapter, And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, and Lazarus came forth. And when he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave cloths, his face was bound with him a napkin. And Jesus said to him, Loose him, and let him go. Why does all of this matter? My friends, Jesus is coming soon. And he's going to descend, as it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He's going to descend with the trump of God, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise. John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everlasting life is only for those who believe in Jesus. It's right there in the most quoted text of all the Bible. Because the rest of the people, they perish. They're not burning forever and ever. They perish and they shall be no more. When Jesus came to earth, he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And he invites us not to harden our hearts as did Saul and other characters in the Bible, not to become so rebellious that we place ourselves in a position where we are actually going to witches. But he came to give us life and life more abundantly, something better than this earth can ever afford. And he says, I am the resurrection of life. What this means, my friends, when we have a correct understanding of the state of the dead, we are believing and acknowledging that I actually need Jesus to raise me from the dead. If I die and just go straight to heaven, I don't really need Jesus. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The only way to have everlasting life is through me. Though you may die, I will raise you back to life if you have died in me because there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection of the life and I want to trust him. Are you willing, this is the appeal tonight, to put your faith in Jesus, the resurrection and the life, and trust Him to be your Lord and Savior. If so, I want to invite you to sing our closing hymn. Number 524. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Can the dead speak, my friends? No, they can't. 
They can't. But while we are living, let us praise the Lord. And let us trust in Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, (coughs) Lord, tonight we stand here choosing to trust in Jesus, the resurrection and the life. Knowing that though we deserve death, when we stand with Jesus, our Savior, We are standing with the one who has conquered death. Lord, we don't want to be as Saul and other people in history who have been rebellious against the word of God. But rather, Lord, we want to trust in Jesus who has promised to give us life and life more abundantly. If it's your desire to trust in Jesus, the resurrection and the life, and to follow him wherever he should lead. Just raise your hands as all heads are bowed. Lord, strengthen us. Keep us faithful. And help us to walk a closer walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.